1: Hello, and welcome to uh, the New Books Network. This is uh, Clara Iwasaki, one of the hosts of the uh, Chinese Studies channel. Um, And I'm here today uh, with Dr. Leile Chen, um, who's here to introduce um, her her really exciting book. Um, So, Dr. Chen, welcome to the channel.
0: Thank you, Clara. It's uh, really a great honor uh, to be able to talk about my book um, here. Yeah, really Uh, Yeah, I'm really grateful for the opportunity.
1: Yeah, I really am looking forward. There are so many things about this that I I really have so many questions about. Um, So I guess just to kind of get started with a a kind of more historical, uh, kind of traditional question on the channel, um, how did you first become interested in this topic?
0: Um, So this is actually uh, from... Uh, my dissertation, my PhD dissertation, and it's a re- rewriting of my PhD dissertation, let's say it that way. Uh, if, we, um, if, if I want to trace back even earlier, uh, it came um, from my reading experience of Colin Subran's travel book while taking a graduate seminar. Uh, so the book is called Behind the Wall. Um, And I was so fascinated. I think I was in the second year of my PhD and the second year of uh, coming over to Canada to, you know, uh, to work on this um, project, uh, the program, PhD program. Um, So I was so fascinated um, the first time when I read the book. Um, And mostly, you know, the image of China that is both familiar and strange is so fascinating to me. And you know, things that were common experience to my Chinese sensibility appeared to be strange in the author's eyes. I find that quite entertaining, actually. And, uh, you know, the author's self-awareness of being a foreign devil, you know, <laughs> quote-unquote, in Chinese people's eye was also engr- engrossing. So basically, I think I was kind of seduced in, into this um, cultural borderland um where a foreign devil let's say trying to make sense of who he is at that point um um and and it also kind of you know um uh coalesce with my um being, uh, my existence of, um, you know, being a Chinese person, um, living and uh, working in a Canadian environment. So there's a lot of uh, connections there. Um, So this book actually got me into uh, reading a whole archive about um, uh, travel books about China. Yeah, so this is basically how I entered into this field.
1: Yeah, that's really kind of an interesting point that you um, were finding this to be kind of like a reverse of your own experience, you know, moving from between China and, um, and Canada. So I guess I'm a bit curious, um, you know, how did you come to select the authors that make up your book? And, you know, how, how did you choose them? What drew you to them? You know, that kind of thing.
0: Um, I choose the authors um, whose writing could offer a more complex, multi-layered view about the place they visited. Um, um, obviously, here, China is my home country, right? I want to see a more complex um, 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 understanding of the country. Um And also the authors whose works hadn't um, gained enough critical attention at that point. So I, we're talking about a project started a decade ago. So it's quite a, uh, 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 quite a while ago. Um, So, but you know, even up to today, I should say not a lot of their works had, had gained critical attention yet in uh, the academia. Um but Peter Hessler now obviously has becoming um, a, a very well-known uh, writer about China um, so and uh, so he has gained a lot of media attention um, so um, but uh, as for the rest of the the authors um, they're well they're uh, well known well Jian Wang is well known obviously um, but Jock Tussle Wilson uh, was not there is still not very um, well-known yet and uh, he is well-known for other achievements but not for his writing about China. So basically I choose their work because the narrative offers a more complex view of China and also because you know their work hasn't gained a lot of critical attention back then when I started.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really, really nice explanation of that. Um, And one of the things that I really, you know, enjoyed about the book um, is the kind of multiple. It's a very interdisciplinary book, um, and it really intervenes in a number of different discourses. I think both in terms of English literature, which is your kind of home discipline, um, you know, Chinese literature. Comparative literature, translation studies, there are, you know, so many things that this book kind of engages with, right? And so, you know, I'm just, I know this is a bit of a big question, but I am kind of curious, um, you know, how does your book intervene in the studies of Orientalism, which is certainly something, you know, I think the title um, of the book itself kind of, um, you know, suggests this uh, translation and travel writing, you know how does how does your book intervene in these three different fields?
0: Yeah, it's a it's a big question. Let's um, talk about one uh, by one. So, talking about uh, how the book intervenes uh, Orientalist discourse. Or Orientalism. You know, I think when we talk about Orientalist discourse uh, or an Orientalism, um, it, it is problematic because it constructs and perpetuates stereotypes about a country, a nation, or culture, or race, or. Um, and it kind of floats the stereotypes above the ground of history, let's say. And it's, it not only pursues differences among peoples and cultures, but also essentializes or freezes the difference. And in this sense, you know, these kind of discourse overlooks and denies the possibility of communication and understanding. So I have trouble um, with this. Um, and... Um, uh, one of the intention of the book, uh, obviously, is to question uh, the Orientalist way of re- representing a foreign country. Um, so um, my book then, um, and the, the travel narratives I have chosen, um, is meant to, they're meant to show how despite the differences and gaps, communication across cultural borders are active ongoing, and hopefully productive. So I want to offer a different scenario when two different cultures or um, agencies of different cultures are interacting with one another. So this is how, um, I guess, my book tried to intervene on the Orientalist uh, kind of way of representing um, um, China and the other in general, I guess. Um, talking about translation um, so I actually find the cultural translation offers a very useful tool uh, for me to engage with uh, the travel writing narrative uh, travel writing I have chosen for for the project um, so um, so um, I borrow, for example, um, the concept of domesticized or foreignized translation um, and using the concept to kind of examine what kind of uh, interpretations are domestic domesticized, uh, 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 translation. So the term itself obviously means, uh, well, not obviously, but uh, it actually means uh, when you translate a foreign culture back to your domestic audience, you want to make your translation appealing to uh, your potential readers and you want to cater to their sensibilities and uh, tastes. Uh, so, Gen uh, Wang's narrative, let's say, you know, offers a good example of domestic uh, domesticized kind of translation, um, and foreignized translation, on the contrary, um, takes care of the context of a culture. When you're introducing a culture, you not only offer them the culture phenomenon, which, to a large extent, exotic, I should say, right. Um, but you offer the kind of contextual information that gives rise to such phenomenon. Um, and then, you know, um, the kind of foreign or exotic culture phenomenon becomes familiar with, um, the offer of, uh, the contextual information. Um, so this is uh, a foreignized translation and a lot of the travel writers I examined in the book, um, actually offers uh, foreignized translation. And so I guess in that sense, uh, culture translation or the theoretical concepts of culture translation kind of offers me um, uh, analytical tools to interpret um, uh, the tribal narratives uh, featured in my book. Um, I actually, uh, I was invited to give... Um, Uh, a keynote speech uh, last fall um, by uh, University of um, Berjand in Iran, um, and their conference um, subject is Interdisciplinary Research on Translation. So uh, my talk uh, features um, a space, uh, the the title of my talk, let's say, um, is A Space of Transformation, Reading Travel Literature as Culture translation. So I think, you know, um, by looking, by borrowing, let's say, theoretical concepts in the field of translation studies, um, I can examine travel books or travel writing um, as a possible space of transformation. So I think this offers me a really powerful uh, critical tool uh, to read travel
1: narratives. Such a rich um, answer. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off.
0: Yeah, okay. So feel free to cut me off. And,
1: oh,
0: no, know, no, no, <laughs> no. No,
1: it's just, uh, yeah, no, it was already just so substantial. I thought you were done, but if you've got more, by all means, like, please keep going. <laughs> it's great. Yeah,
0: I, I, I want to respond also to your question about, um, you know, how the book intervened on the study of travel writing. And this is my specialty, and this is my, um, you know, area of research. Uh, One of the my focuses, uh, research focuses. So actually, in the book, I kind of uh, combed through a little bit history of travel literature studies. Um, So um, I think my intention is to join the conversation. Uh, with other scholars of um, travel writing studies um, and try to offer my uh, perspective um, and join the conversation and kind of enrich the study of the genre. So at the very beginning, um, it's, you know, the Orientalist kind of critique of um, travel narrative. Uh, Scholars are, uh, obviously, they were inspired by Edward Said's Orientalism, um, and they try to critique travel narratives as, um, um, as kind of discourse that articulates imperialism. Um, so um, within within the field of, of travel writing about China, I was thinking, you know, for example, uh, Timothy Kendall's book called Ways of Seeing China from Yellow Peril to Shangri- Shangri-La. So basically, you know, what he said in that book is, you know, how travel writing represents China as the Oriental Other, uh, which is, you know, um, uh, the anti- an- an- antithesis, let's say, or the o- opposite of um, the West. Um, so this is a kind of the beginning um, of... Um, Travel writing studies, and and later on, I read uh, Mary Louise Pratt's book called *Imperial Eyes*, um, and the subtitle of her book is um, "There's a word called transculturation." So I was intrigued by a transculturation. It's it's a term borrowed from sociology uh, field, right? So it's um uh um and how. You know this, the the traveler and uh, the subject dialogue with each other, and what's going on in the borderland uh, of cross culture communication. So, um, but I I was a little bit disappointed after reading the book because I I feel you know it still gives me a sense of how imperialism is uh, consolidated or articulated or even perpetuated. Um, in travel literature, way back, you know, uh, um, from the 17th century, the very start of colonial uh, uh, colonialism, all the way to the contemporary uh, period of time, and Mary Louise Pratt talked about, you know, Paul Theroux, for example, uh, a very big name in travel writing. Uh, so, and later on, I I also, you know, read uh, Stephen Clark's. Um, Book. The, the book actually he edited is called um, Introduction to Travel Writing, An Empire, Post-colonial Theory in Transit. Uh, I really enjoy reading the introduction. Uh, in the introduction, uh, he expressed the intention of departing further from this uh, Orientalist or imperialistic kind of a way of um, uh, critiquing travel narratives. Um, So, and 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 uh, so my obviously my approach is to read travel writing as um, a space of cultural translation. So I brought in travel. uh, I brought in translation studies in um, into analyzing or interpreting travel narratives. Yeah. So that gives you kind of an idea of how I joined the conversation. Uh, with other scholars of travel writing, I also want to mention, uh, if I may, um, and um, uh, a book called "New Directions in Travel Writing Studies," um, published, I believe, by um, uh, University of Hong Kong Press. Um, and the scholars or the collection of essays in that book um, use Jo humanities. So, jaw Humanities is the kind of critical uh, framework uh, that kind of um, encompassed all the uh, contributors' uh, studies in that book. I find it quite also very interesting. So, people or you know researchers and scholars started to approach the uh, the genre from various uh, you know interdisciplinary kind of uh, perspectives so i guess that answers your question
1: yeah i mean there's just so much there but i i think that's just such a rich you know i think such a rich excavation you've done so much in in a, re- a very small amount of time um and you've given i think hopefully some of the listeners uh, uh, some recommended reading right to to kind of follow up with after they after they take a look at your book um but yeah, I think that was a really wonderful introduction to the to your book. Um, and, you know, I it, I have a couple other questions just sort of around the framing, um, you know, and, and some of the kind of way that you frame this book. And then we'll get into, you know, some of the chapters here. Um, so I guess one of the things that struck me as I was reading your book um, was that you chose, you know, several white... I think for the most part, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, most of them are American. Is that correct? Um, mm-hmm. Authors.
0: Or- yeah. yeah, I have quite American authors. Yeah, Peter Hessler, for example, Yifu Tuan, Bill Gates. Yeah. Um, Leslie Ch- T. Chang, too. Yeah, I have four American authors. Yeah. And two Canadian. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I know Jan Wong is is Canadian um, as well. Yeah, so I, I guess I, I was sort of curious. You know, you you kind of um, cover a lot of literature of North America, right? Travel literature about China from North America, um, and some of the people are uh, white, um, and some some of them, um, including Yifu Duan and uh, Jan Wong and Leslie Zhang, are either Chinese Canadian, Chinese American or I mean we're going to come to Yifu Duan at some point and his kind of own identity seems incredibly complicated which really made that uh, chapter in my you know my very humble opinion like quite compelling um, so I you know I guess he's somewhere in between but you know I guess I was curious you know was this something that you were thinking about the kind of makeup of the authors because the way that they see themselves in relation to China seems to kind of influence the way that they are, they are talking about it, the way that they are writing about it, and the way they feel about themselves. So I, I was kind of curious if this was something in your mind as you were kind of plotting out how to write, you know, how to frame and how to organize the book.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And I've been thinking about uh, how to organize and how to choose the authors, right, um, and to uh, formulate um, you know, a, a book-length project. Um, I actually, like I said, I rewrote my PhD dissertation. So some chapters um, are added to, uh, let me see. Yeah, so Jian Wang, for example, I think is I can't remember; it's ten years ago. But uh, so there, there are some, um, you know, um, revolutionary changes <laughs> uh, moving my PhD dissertation to um, this this book. Um, yeah, I, you know, um, I wasn't consciously um, aware of the, you know, the racial background uh, at the very beginning. Um, But it ended up, you know, uh, it ended up focusing on, you know, like you said, uh, some white American authors and also, you know, diaspora uh, Chinese authors. Uh, It's not intentional. Um, I mentioned earlier, you know, I really look, uh, I, I looked for. Those travel writings, which could offer us a more complicated view of the country, so it seems to be a natural kind of result that I have authors, you know, coming to my view, um, and I really enjoy their uh, uh, their writing about China. Um, not because of their racial background, but because of their vision, the way how they communicate with um, the Chinese subjects when they were in 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 the the, the place. Um, so no, I guess you know I'm not consciously choosing a certain author because of his race or his um, um, background. I'm more I was more attracted by their their writing, actually. So hope hopefully that answers your question. Yeah.
1: No, I, I I think that it does, absolutely. Um, I actually had a sort of follow-up question to that. So you just mentioned that that this, you know, and I think you had mentioned a little bit earlier that this was originally a PhD project that like changed quite a bit. Um you know, in the kind of transformation between dissertation and book. And so I, I think, um, you know, for, perhaps for, for listeners who might be contemplating a similar uh, transformation, you know, were there any particular challenges that came with this process, you know, of, of moving from the dissertation to the book?
0: Yeah, so mostly you are no longer writing just for your committee, right? Uh, you're, you you have a wider uh, readership in your mind when you're um, planning for the book, obviously. And this was also uh, advice I uh, have got from my um, supervisors and my readers and the editors, Um so, uh, what I need to do first of all is was to kind of truncate or cut off all those uh, theoretical jargons, um, and also try to um, to put all those footnotes into the text itself. So, how to eliminate footnotes and make the writing more readable to um, the general re- reading public? So, this was. Um, In my mind throughout the writing process um yeah so i guess that's that's uh what i mean by um revolutionary changes and the other thing if i remember correctly you know jen wang was not in my dissertation um i added her into the book because there was a suggestion um back then um that uh, she might trigger um more interest um Yeah. In, in, in the book. Um, so yeah. And I added that chapter, um, added her as one of the authors I'm, 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 you know, I, um, wrote about, um, Yeah. Yeah.
1: For, for what it's worth, I really, um, I really enjoyed the way that this book is written. I I thought the, it's a really beautifully written book. I really, you know, I mean, there were there were a number of other things that I enjoyed about it, obviously, as I think my questions hopefully will will show, but, uh, you know, conceptually and other things. But I, I do, you know, and, and for people who are contemplating picking up the book, I, I really think the you know, the style and the quality of the writing, which is I think sometimes something that doesn't come through in an interview, right? Um, you know, it's, it's really great. Like I, I it was a really enjoyable read. Um, so I, I think some of that effort probably paid off in my humble opinion
0: Thank you so much you know uh, it's such a you know I, I, it makes me really happy you know to to hear you say that because I do have a few friends who told me ah there's it's it's still very academic <laughs> well i, I, I can't I can only tell them you know it's academic in nature right although I've been working hard actually to <laughs> to tone it down a little bit and try to make it more accessible, um, but I guess you know because it it's um, it contains a lot of theoretical kind of concepts, uh, even though I try to use um, um, kind of um, you know non academic uh, words or. Uh, phrases. I still sounds academic, um, and you know. And the other thing is, that I always feel it's kind of incredible, even to myself. And uh, English is my second language; it's not my native native language. And my first publication, my first book, is not was not written in my native language. You know, it was always always amazing to myself. I couldn't believe it still. Like I can't believe it. Uh, it's it's real, but it's real. I guess there's another. I don't know it's yeah it's um yeah but I think it's it's actually um a good thing to stay aware of making your book more readable because you want to um you know um spread your idea you want to communicate with your readers right so um yeah it's I am glad to hear you say you know it's a very well written. <laughs> yeah.
1: I well I you know I guess in defense of these friends who were very critical you know I you know, as a fellow academic maybe I am not like the best judge of you know but at least to me right I I really found it to be a very enjoyable read. I perhaps you know I I you know I take to to things with more kind of you know we we have to put in some jargon right it, it is an academic book this is just part of the job right but um you know I I I liked it. Um I didn't think it was very full of jargon, but, you know, we're, we're all coming from different places. So, um, yeah, but I, I, I did really enjoy that. And I, I did just want to, to mention that. Um, so I'm going to kind of ask a question that maybe is, is maybe not quite in the right order. But I, I did think this might be a sort of interesting way into the book. And part of it was just because I found this statement so interesting. So in the afterword of the book, so I'm going to the very end and then we're going to come back around to the sort of the earlier parts of the book. You kind of mentioned that the first time that you read um, Hillgate's memoir, um, which you deal with sort of later on in the book, but this is something that you mentioned in the afterward, um, that you were extremely frustrated. And so, um, you know, I I was really kind of taken with this statement um, in part because, you know, some advice that I got in graduate school when I was thinking of a dissertation topic was, well, you have to pick something that you really like because you're going to spend so much time with it. Uh, so you, you can't, you're going to get sick of it anyway. So you, you should really like, like it in the beginning so that you won't absolutely hate it by the end. so I was kind of like, what, what motivated, you know, what motivated you to begin with something where your first reaction, obviously you came to something else later, right. Um, was such a, was such a kind of strong and and like somewhat negative reaction, I guess. I'm just so curious.
0: Uh, you know what? Um, Hill Gates was actually my choice. Uh, I you know, the the first time I read her book, I found it quite uh, enlightening. Um, in the sense that you know she was a, she's an anthropologist, right? And she was. Um, um, a, her vision of uh, China and her way of interpreting uh, Chinese culture, especially, you know, um, uh, you know, her working experience with uh, women in China, um, I I find it quite enlightening. And uh, I also find her vision, her writing of her Chinese experience uh, differed a lot from other uh, writers of China. So that's, that made me actually um, uh, choose her as one of my uh, authors. Uh, so, you know, hers was a good book, I should say. Uh, I, I said in the afterwards, you know, some part of the book I just found quite frustrating. For example, she was saying, you know, walking walking in the streets of Guangzhou, if I remember correctly. Uh, and it was chaotic. It was dirty. I think it's, it probably was one of the, Poor area of the city, um, and you see garbage, uh, you know, everywhere. And she, what she said, you know, uh, I, I'm just become a local, uh, and I just finished eating a banana and uh, threw away the peel, just uh, uh, and random. How do you do that? Like, you know, if I, I was thinking back then, like the first time when I read that detail, I said. I I wouldn't have done that, um, you know. Even though it's a dirty area, I, you know, it makes you. It I don't know. It it makes your readers feel you are not a nice person, right? Uh, at least that's my feeling. So there's some part of her book things like that makes me feel ah you know that's not very nice um so I use that as an example actually to show my transformation through uh working on this project so how I became more tolerant and how I start to think oh well you know um People are changeable, right? We are changing all the time, and we change uh, in different um, culture, environment, and social settings. And in that particular culture environment, it's very easy for her to just be one of them. You know, everybody is throwing garbage, garbage, right? And why I, you know, I, I should be with them, like being one of the locals right so I think I raised that um, I pointed out that detail to show how working on a project like this is self-transformative so I started to feel I've been changed as well through dialoguing with all the travel writers and their writings about China so I guess that's what I meant in the afterword Correct me if I'm that... wrong. Yeah, I haven't, I
1: haven't read. No, <laughs> no, I, I would, I would never dream of correcting you about your own book. I feel like this would actually be quite rude, <laughs> so I'm not going to do that. But I, I, I believe from my, you know, from reading the afterword a few, a few days ago, I'm pretty sure you're correct about uh, the details of that. So um, while I, you know, I would absolutely never correct you on something you're the expert on. I, I believe that you are representing your own words correctly, as far as I remember. Um, so. I'd like to sort of jump into the book. I mean, since you have, I think, kind of, uh, you know, talked about this so eloquently, you know, especially in talking about this idea of self transformation. Um, and, I, you know, I just as a sort of parenthetical, I do really think it's interesting that you study so many scholars Right. That a, a lot of scholars are also the subject of, of a kind of, you know, literary analysis and, and in certain cases, literary critique, um, you know, and, and I, I find then your own kind of turning that back on yourself to be, I think, quite interesting. Um, so I'd like to, you know, I am, you know, for listeners who have not had a chance to pick up this book, which I, you know, I highly recommend, um, you know, I am skipping over a few chapters, you know, but there are a, a number of other, you know, um, works that uh, Lele, uh, you know, covers in the book that are really worth, also worth your time. But I'm, I'm going to kind of zero in um, on, in fact, that Jan Wong chapter, which you had said, you know, there was a comment that maybe this would attract more attention. Um, it did attract my attention. Um, and, you know, I'm I was not like born in Canada. So, you know, Jan Wong is someone that I learned about actually after I immigrated to to Canada. So for those um, those listeners who might not be super familiar with her, although she's a very well-known figure in Canada. Absolutely. I, I don't dispute that. Could you maybe introduce her a little bit um, and explain um what drew you to her memoir? And the, the memoir that Lele talks about in this chapter is Red China Blues. Um, she's written a couple other books, I think, on, on China as well. But this is the one you're, I think, the most famous one and the one you're focusing on. Um, you know, what drew you to this work? What drew you to the author? Wow.
0: <laughs> well talking about Jean uh, it, it has been a struggle you know it had been a, a,
1: a struggle
0: um at the very beginning i couldn't i couldn't read her book at all because i think it's so outrageous <laughs> uh, she's just too negative um you know in my chinese eyes i should say um and one of my friends actually um who shared the same feelings about her book and, um, and she was arguing with her, uh, Canadian, uh, concussion, uh, white, uh, friend and they broke up because of the argument. You can see how, <laughs> how conflictual, um, it can be, you know, if you're from different cultural background, you disagree and, um, and, and strongly disagree and it, it breaks you up, you know, with your friends. So, um, what drew me to Jian Wang? Um, I think my supervisor back then, um, actually forced me to read <laughs> Jian Wang. Um, and, um, so Janice Williamson, who is uh, who has a lot of interest in in, in Chinese culture and um, and Chinese uh, people and country, she actually adopted a girl from China, um, and she was yeah she has a lot of fascination for for the place, and she said you you need to you know um, read uh, Wan and include her in your in your work. Um, Yeah, it like I said, it was a struggle. Um, So when I finally um, incorporate Genoa in my book, I I should say it's to uh, it's more to answer an English speaking audience request than um, fulfilling my own um, pursuit. Let's say that, let's put that way. Uh, I also feel I'm responsible because when people are saying, how do you respond to this? How do you, as a scholar, how do you dialogue with a text like this? I need to offer a satisfactory answer. Uh, I need to, I feel, you know, I have this responsibility to, to, to engage with Jianwan's uh, text, no matter how outrageous it could be, you know, or at the beginning. Um, So Jian Wang, um, uh, briefly, um, she was uh, a global and male uh, journalist and she is regarded as one of the authoritative speakers about China or Chinese issues in Canada. And uh, she's very actively, uh, uh, I think she's, I I haven't heard uh, about her in recent years, but uh, while I was working on a book, you know, she was still very active uh, in um, uh, media and you, you know, uh, TV shows and um, radios and interviews and things like that. So she she was definitely um, an authoritative speaker about China. Um, Red China Blues was, is a memoir and it, it shows her um, experience as an exchange student in Beijing University back in the 1970s when China was still in its cultural revolutionary period. Um, So it it was definitely a dark historical moment um, back then. Um, And the book also talks about um, um, the Tiananmen Massacre uh, later on in 19... 19, uh, 1989 and um, she went back to China Beijing again as a global and male uh, journalist uh, reporting about um, the massacre of scene so um, uh, yeah so it's it's a collection of her mem- uh, memoir pieces let's let's put it that way um, um And um, so, but even when she was reporting um, contemporary China uh, in that book, uh, she only mostly, let's say, um, focused on the dark uh, aspects of China. Um, I'm not saying those information are, are wrong or, you know, it's it's not accurate. It's accurate um, because it's nonfiction. It's based on her real experience. And I also trust her, um, you know, uh, as a, as a um, very uh, good journalist, very productive and responsible and uh, uh, journalist, right? And I have no doubt about her professional qualities. Um, but what I find it problematic is, you know, there's mo- no moment of dialogue, uh, between her as a traveler and, um, the Chinese subjects, let's say, um, you know, it's still the kind of orientalist kind of discourse, uh, repeated, uh, in, in her so that was my kind of judgment uh, at that time. But when I decided to include her as, um, um, as part of my book, um, I tried to invent a different way of interpreting her narrative. Uh, instead of critiquing um, the Orientalist kind of uh, tendencies or representational mode, Um, I was looking for the gaps of the Orientalist discourse, the gaps, um, I'm trying to find an example. Um, yeah, I think readers can find that in, in reading that chapter, obviously, but, uh, what I actually mean is, um, so I'm thinking, let's say, in Beijing Confidential, which is the other book I I did mention in that chapter as well, um, talks about her most recent travel with her family, her husband and her two boys back to Beijing, and trying to kind of reconcile with, um, with her old friend in Beijing University. And because... She actually betrayed uh, one of her best friend in Cultural Revolutionary time because her friend asked her uh, for help because she, bet- she her friend want to come come to the United States or immigrant to the United States and ask Jian Wang for help, and instead of helping her, she actually reported her to the authority uh, of the university. And so, and and this trip, the purpose of this trip was to kind of reconcile with um, this guilty conscience by reconnecting with uh, her friend in Beijing. So you can see, actually, in the narrative, they have been in touch and they have really strong connections. They have they have been very good friends. Um, but when reading the narrative, you also feel a very strong sense of um otherness let's say and there's an intention to kind of um, construct her friend even though you know they're very intimate as a reader you can tell that um but there's still a sense of separation and the still um, the the kind of orientalist way of representing her best friend so I'm trying to kind of um, you know uh, show the readers um, the gaps uh, right it's not all about you know the other you you do have a good connection uh with with your friends even though you betrayed her in cultural revolutionary time like 30 years ago 30 or no 50 years ago even 50 years ago and you are still in close contact and you know and um so the kind of intimacy let's say the the close Relationship conflicts with uh, her orientalist way of representing the other. So, I try to make that clear in order to show you know, um, there is a moment of cross cultural connection um, and intimacy across cultural borders, um, but we need to read between the lines, let's say, or we need to kind of dig deeper into. Uh, the gaps of this orientalist um, um, monolithic orientalist uh, discourse in order to see uh, the connections and the dialogues and the you know the, the, the productive kind of interactions. So that's I hope that kind of you know gives you a, a sense of what I'm trying to say All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month and six months of Paramount
1: Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I think so. I actually had a couple follow-up questions to that. I mean, it's a really, I think, a very concise... Um, you know, representation of a lot of the arguments that are in that chapter. Um, one of the things that you kind of mentioned in the beginning um, is that Jan Wong is outrageous, and is is that out? I I don't is is it the outrageousness related to how you feel she's like too negative? Is it related to the negativity?
0: Uh, yes, at the beginning, I should say, yeah, it it did relate to, uh, um, you know, uh, she only portrays the dark side of China. And I guess I had a strong sense of attachment to my home country back then at the very beginning of working on the subject, right? Um, yeah, so it's um, outrageous in that sense, definitely. Um, and, and also, I guess, outrageous in... He's in her one sidedness in in writing about a place. I think it's not fair. You're not doing justice to the complexity of such a huge country. Uh, you know, I was thinking about Paul Theroux, for example. I was teaching, um, you know, uh, his travel writing to India. Um, you know, it's all like dark and you know, it's repellent kind of. You know, the whole foreign kind of space is 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 repellent. Um and there's no way to kind of um to to dig into um the, the, the complexities of the space. I think it's also outrageous in that sense. Right, in talking about Jian Wang's red China blues.
1: Yeah. That's an interesting point. So would it be fair to say, I, I think this is my impression having read the book, that Jian Wang's account is of the the six that you present the most negative is that is that a fair assessment yeah, it is okay it is that <laughs> I, you, and and then i guess like another kind of follow up question and again i just like have so many thoughts like based on this response so if her if it's ori- you you say it's like orientalizing right that this like chapter is a sort of orientalizing portrait of of china I think I can foresee a number of arguments that would support this, right? But can it be orientalizing if the person who's doing the orientalizing is themselves ethnically Chinese, um, is it self orientalizing? Is it something else? Right. Um, which I I think hopefully also kind of gels well with one of the other things that you have already eloquently discussed, how you intervene in this kind of orientalism discourse, right. Um, you know, uh, how, how do you, how in your view does that work? I'm, I'm very curious.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great question. That's really a great question. I think it's possible for a Chinese person to orientalize uh, China and Chinese people, um, because bear in mind, and any writer is, is speaking to a particular audience, right? So who are you writing for? So in Jia Wang's case, I should say she is, she was writing for a, a English-speaking audience, obviously, right? And um, and her role as a journalist um, uh, required her to write in certain way, uh, follow the kind of conventional uh, genre of a journalistic account, for example, and also caters for the, you know, the sensibilities of English readers. So, yeah, I think definitely it's possible for um, for uh, for a writer like Jian Wang to orientalize China. Definitely. Um, yeah, you know, uh, this reminds me of uh, Les- Leslie T. Chang, right? Leslie Ch- T. Chang has also a Chinese heritage. And uh, she is a little bit different. She's from Taiwan. And she, But originally, the whole family is from mainland China in Dongbei um, uh, region of China. Um, you know, after writing Factory Girls, <laughs> um, and she decided not to be a journalist anymore and she's yeah she decided to do um um full-time writing or writing other genres instead of journalistic account because she has learned like journalistic Account is so limiting, and there's no space for her to explore all the experience, the richness of her experience as a traveler. Um, and by the way, she's um, Peter Hessler's wife. Uh, for those of you who uh, who didn't, I, I, you know, it took me a long time to know. You know, I didn't know it when when I started uh, to work. Um, uh, work on, on her book but I later found out Peter Hessler and uh, Leslie Chang are a couple um, so um, yeah so I guess that's a kind of you know a related uh, uh, point to yeah. what we are actually, yeah.
1: actually since we're on the topic I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit and I do want to get to Hill Gates and I do want to get to a bunch of other things but since you brought it up and you brought Leslie Chang Leslie up um One of the other issues, I mean, I I found that chapter to be very compelling for a number of reasons, but, you know, one of the things that kind of jumped out at me that I did want to ask you about actually kind of occurs in the footnotes, which is a very unusual thing for me. I I generally, you know, footnotes are great. I love footnotes, but um, I didn't really don't like want to ask about them. But one of the things that you kind of cite in there, which I just found so fascinating was the kind of ethical issues that you had with both Jan Wong and Leslie Zhang's use of names, how they are naming people. Um, and I am not super clear on this. So feel free to correct me. Uh, Leslie Jong changed names uh, and Jan Wong modified people's names. So I'd, I'd really like to just hear more about this again, because it, it really fits in, I think, with these ideas of translation. Um, and we've been talking a bit about ethics actually. Right. But this kind of this difficulty that you, you found, um, in, in both of their work. So, you know, since, you know, there seems to be some resonance there. Um, and because you've, you've brought them up together, I thought this might be a nice uh, sort of natural point to, to, to bring that up. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? I'm just so interested to know.
0: Yeah, uh, that's, again, a great question. Uh, I think the question actually connects to translation again. How do you translate people's names to a domestic audience, right? Um, so so if you read uh, Red China Blues uh, and you look at the names in, in that book, um, there is a to me there is an intention of uh characterize if i may reuse this you're creating a character by uh translating the person's name um obviously easy for the english-speaking readers to remember right i think there's a good intention there you know you translate people's names so that your readers can you know find it familiar and easier to um to remember um but I also feel there is an uh, intention to kind of um, exoticize uh, the names. Uh, let me uh, exoticize may not be the proper word, but um, um, so I, I just let let me give you an example here. So uh, Jian Wang interviewed uh, Mao Xinyu, which is the son of Mao Zedong, Mao Zedong's son, who is a, a disabled person sitting in a you know, uh uh wheelchair. Uh she means a new universe. Translating literally it means new universe, right? Um and then Jen in Jen Wang said, um, you know, Jen Wang in, in, in her book she called it New World. So New World, you know, caters more to the sensibilities of the settlers in North America, right? The um um, this is one example. I can't remember other examples, but um, my impression was, um, you know, she deliberately translate people's names so that uh, she makes them funny. Um, and um, and there is I feel there is a lack of respect to the original uh, person. Uh, so that's that's where, you know, ethical kind of uh, concerns um, Came in, so there is an eth- ethical issue in terms of translation and in, in terms of people's names. Um, but Jianhua, I think um, there is a change. As you, if you see the you know people's names in Beijing Confidential, um, she started to use uh, the real person's names, like Yin Luoyi, if I remember correctly. Just to use Chinese pinyin um, to show the exact sound of that person's name. So there's a change in in, in, in her words definitely um, we shouldn't neglect that um, but if you read Red China Blues, I think that's another thing that I found back then outrageous. <sighs> Uh, you know, I was imagining. I was chatting with a former colleague. You know, it's like my name, uh, Lele Chen. Lele actually in Chinese means bud, or the you know the flower, pri- you know, just about to bloom, right? Bud. Uh, so she would call me Bud Chen <laughs> in her book. <laughs> I don't know. Like you know, it, you know, there is a. I just feel there is a lack of respect. Um, at least I feel, feel it from my, you know, Chinese perspective, let's say. Leslie Chan, I think there's only uh, one person's name. She made a change. It's Ming. Uh, Ming, the original name is Lu Qingming, and she used the last character in the person's name. Um, uh, in, in her book, but she also include her full name, and she is also conscious of making changes of people's names. So there is definitely a difference if you compare uh, Leslie Jones' uh, book and Jianwan's Red China Blue. So um, yeah, I think um, as writers, I think I think when you translate again, when you translate foreign people's names, you need to be aware of
1: that. Yeah it's, it's a really interesting point uh, you know i feel like this is still something that people argue about i mean um i don't know if you're familiar with the david Hawkes translation of hong lomong mong um, uh-huh. and he translates uh he translates the family like the kind of like uh, the Jia family names uh, just in Pinyin, or I guess it's in Wade-Giles technically because it was published earlier. But translates the servants' names as like you know, like Lotus, you know, or Jade, you know. Uh, who am I thinking of? I think they translate Xiren as like Aroma, you know, something like that. And then the actors have French names, and the Taoists and the Buddhists have latin names and like (laughs) you know i you know some of this has kind of made me think you know i i think that like maxine hong kingston was also translating names you know in this much more kind of like uh i don't know how to quite describe it right but like orchid you know moon orchid you know something like that right so perhaps parts of this are stylistic or you know perhaps this is an approach that is somewhat dated right but it I, I think I've seen some people, you know, online complaining about the David Hawks, you know, how he did this, because it it does really, as you say, right, it does really influence the way that you receive. Whereas if you read it, these names are somewhat equal. And there, you know, there can be certain, you know, at least in his case, right, class implications of translating the master's names in some ways, and then the servant's names in other, you know, like, it. it and you know, you get why he's doing it, but... It, those are, I think, some interesting concerns. So I was just so interested to know, right, that this is also an issue, you know, this is still an issue, right? It it remains a kind of sticky issue, how you do it um, and, and like what kind of effect you want. Um, So yeah, I, I just found that, uh, frankly, to be one of the more interesting footnotes that I've read this year, uh, in the last half year, I guess this year is, is pretty new. So that's not a big compliment, but it was a really interesting, it made me think about, you know, a lot of things, but, uh, okay. Um, so yeah, I, I did just find this, um, so interesting. Okay. So let's, let's return, uh, to Hill Gates, uh, she of the banana peel. Um, this is not the only thing obviously that you talked about. Um, but you know, she, you, you talk about her memoir about doing fieldwork in Chengdu, right. And, um, you know, you've already, I think, talked a little bit about what drew you to this publication, but I was also once again, sort of on the similar, um, kind of a theme of translation, right. You kind of describe her as a translator, which I think for those of us who are perhaps more familiar with her as, you know, a kind of like very famous anthropologist or sociologist, I, I can't remember, um, you know, a very famous social scientist, uh, you know that might be sort of surprising to us right so can you kind of go into your argument or your approach to looking at gates as a translator or you know the way that she's writing us in some way translational Mm
0: -hmm. yeah that's a great question i think Hugh gates um is a good example um to show what foreignizing translation actually means. So foreignizing translation, as I uh, mentioned earlier, is to translate not just the cultural phenomenon, but also the context that gives rise to that phenomenon, right? Um, And um, it's, you know, that's more in the sense of cultural translation, but it's also a question about literary translation or literal translation, right? I remember uh, one part of his uh, her book talk about uh, translating the um, uh, the information about um, a Chinese uh, herbal medicine uh, for flu, like balangen, uh, and it's the, the 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 name of the medicine. Um, and um, there is, uh, you know, in the Chinese original, there is this traditional Chinese medicine concept as uh, feng han, uh, feng re, which means uh, translating literally, it's a wind cold or wind uh, uh, warm, something like that. So it's two it's um it's two kind of you know Chinese traditional Chinese medicine concept which you cannot find equivalent in the English language. Um so and then she was criticizing the translation on that on that bottle, the package of the herbal medicine, saying that this is really garbage translation, it's bad translation because it's you know it's literal translation, right? You just say cold we could uh, cold uh, okay, wind cold or wind warm. What does that mean? No English speakers will, will understand what that means, right? So, so she was raising that question, uh, how to be a good translator. And then her answer to that is you need to translate the whole context in order to make sense of um, the original. Um, but she also raised, uh, you know, the question of untranslatability right? So some part of the culture may not be translatable um, because you can't find equivalent linguistic elements uh, to fulfill the translation task. Uh, um, So, yeah, I guess um, that's that's the kind of the connection between Hill Gates and and translation. Uh, And I think this also connects to what we discussed earlier about translating people's names. And Um, I'm also a literary translator, right? Uh, So I've been, you know, working on uh, translating poetry and prose uh, in both directions. Um, There is a conflict, you know, when talking about foreignizing translation. um, This is ethically required. When you translate a foreign culture, you also introduce the cultural context, right? You're not just showing the cultural phenomenon. Uh, which is exotic, but when you come to uh, literary translation, um, foreignizing translation does not work on a lot of occasions. And actually a good translator, the standard of a good translator, is to be able to use the familiar language of the targeted uh, readers to express the meaning of the original text, right? So um uh, there is a conflict there uh, when talking about literal translation and culture translation. Um yeah, that's something that um uh, um come to my mind uh as well. Yeah. Does that respond to your question, Clara?
1: Yeah, I, I think that was such like a good it was such a good point. Um and like, you know, I think it it's again really rich. I think we're hopefully picking up on some of these like themes that really run throughout the book, right? These these kinds of threads that that sort of weave all of these things together, um, but yeah, also just like a really nice um, kind of discussion of the way that she's doing that. Uh, you know, it, it was also I think kind of striking to me in that this is a context that I haven't really seen her explored before. Um, you know, I, when I when I hear about her, it is largely like within the context of the arguments that she makes. Um, you know, in her in her work, right? The observations that she's made and the you know that kind of thing. So it was, it was quite enlightening, you know, it was quite interesting for me to see somebody who I'm, I'm fairly familiar with in a, in a really different light, um, you know, in this way. So I I did really appreciate that. Um, and I guess like on the topic of social scientists, uh, read as literature in this, in this work, right. Famous, famous social scientists. Um, I'd like to turn to the final chapter, um, on Yifu Duan, um, who is, I believe, a geographer, um, although in this case you are dealing not with any of his geographical studies, um, but on his own memoir of, um, you know, I I guess for those who might be less familiar with him, would you mind, like, again, introducing him a little bit um, and, and then just kind of explaining, you know, why you chose to end the book with this chapter, which at least to my you know when i was reading it it felt very intentional um you know m- maybe not but but i i'm just curious uh you know why did, why did you choose to end with with him and and who is he
0: i'm so glad to hear that uh you you can see my intention of clo- closing the book with uh the Dwight chapter um yeah, you know, um, the the focus of the chapter is definitely, you know, coming home to China. But actually, in that book, he also has um, uh, his lecture notes uh, in, in the book. So it's a kind of a combination of both the description of his travel, short stay in China, um, and um, the lecture notes, um, from from the, from the, the talk uh, you know she was invited to, to give to a Chinese audience. And I actually find the lecture notes are very, very enlightening. Um, and uh, she, Yifu Tuan, by the way, is a humanist geographer. Um, and uh, I find her really enlightening in her interpretation of cultural identity. Um, So, And the the definition he offers in that book, for example, is, uh, you know, cultural identity is determined by history, language, and geography. So often, you know, we don't think cultural identity um, from that perspective. And I find that uh, it's quite enlightening um and in linguistic identity for example right so who we are are uh, actually determined by the language we use so with that in mind i always tell my students you know think about you know don't laugh at people who speak with an accent because that's their identity right it's their history right they 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 have their personal history they speak an english in a certain way um, and you know, even Edmontonians speak English with an accent, right? They speak English different from someone from Oxford or from New York, um, right? So I find her his um, definition of identity quite uh, enlightening. Um, no, actually, you know, the the reason why uh, why I choose. Um, uh, to talk about uh, his book at the end of my book um, is because I really uh, see hope or a possible kind of way uh, to engage with the globalized world, um, the concept of cosmopolitan hearts. Uh, this is the kind of uh, concept that uh, he offered in, 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 in his um, study or his research, his scholarly works. So cosmopolitan hearts recognize the importance of home, right? So hearth is a metaphor for home, a comfort zone, right? Your nation or your country or any familiar space that you have been part of. And that makes who you are. Uh, so there is, um, a confirmation of the importance of home in that concept. But there is also a, a, a question, questioning, or uh, let's say, um, um, I wouldn't say challenge, but uh, I think question would be a better word, uh, or realization of home's confinement, right? A home offers you comfort, but it can be confining. It can be restrictive, so Cosmopolitan Hearts offers an ideal of joining um, both parts, right? You have a sense of home, but you are also open to new possibilities, to a wider world beyond the comfort zone of home. So for me, I think it kind of speaks to my experience as well as a traveler or as a, uh Uh, immigrant you know moving from China and reestablish a new home in Canada Um, it offers me a solution to um, to the problem of who I am and how do I interpret my way of being my way of existence in this world how do I dialogue with my uh, former self and how to kind of offer a possible solution to the questions I have uh, for for people who are traveling like me or who are changing space um, like me. And if you think about um, today's globalized world where people, you know, run around all the time, you know, uh, for various reasons you know they may escape from their country because there are disasters or war going on they become refugee in a new country and it could because of voluntary choice like me myself you know I I was quite established in China before coming to Canada I'm you know associate professor in Jinan University before doing my PhD in U of A so but I feel you know Canada offers me uh a better, um, space of work and life. So it's, it's a voluntary choice. Um, and so, and I also, um, talk about this with my students a lot, even though you probably have never traveled, um, you know, outside your home, but you encounter any, on a daily basis, probably, you know, someone or people from elsewhere around the world, especially if you think about U.S. and Canada as a immigrant country, right? So you encounter people from other cultures on a daily basis. And how do you um, process that? And how do you make sense of that, right? So cosmopolitan hearth. Offers a, a solution, the best solution so far that I have found uh, to my puzzlements and my questions. Um, yeah, and and I remember he made a bold argument: uh, human beings are fundamentally homeless. And I really like, and I think it's a it's a great point to make. So where is home, right? If you say here is my home, you're refu- you're kind of restricting yourself you're saying i you know i you know i you're kind of rob yourself of the possibility of changes positive changes let's say um yeah i guess i hope that answers your question
1: (laughs) i think so yeah i think so that there's really a lot there but i think that's like a you know a, a really really nice way to start to close out the interview um you know um with the kind of like final thoughts of Yifu Duan and the final kind of observations that you have about it, um, so we have taken up a lot of your time. Um, but before we, you know, start to kind of wrap up, I'm just kind of curious. You know, is there anything that we did not get to in this interview that you would like to mention?
0: I also want to briefly mention, you know, the other writer I looked at in the book, um, Jack Tussle Wilson. You know, he was a um, physical just geos- uh a, a physical a geophysicist, sorry, geophysicist. So uh, she was a scientist and she traveled in China in nineteen fifties, so actually nineteen fifty eight if I remember correctly, when China was in its the peak time of its communist revolutions. Um, but I was so intrigued by his narrative. And, you know, he was the traveler who was able to um, see beyond the kind of uh, Orientalist discourse, let's say, uh, to dig into um, the, the you know, the society and the culture Um to the extent that you know, um, he could see possibilities of communication and exchange um, across cultural borders. And what was really, really uh, um, remarkable is, um, you know, after visiting China, uh, he initiated a lot of cultural exchange programs. Uh, obviously, she's. Uh, he served as the the head of a institution. I can't remember the uh, the name. And he was the professor, right? He was a professor of U of T. And there is a lot of cultural exchanges were initiated as uh, a result of his visit of communist China. I think I don't know. You know, in a contemporary kind of political climate, I think it really worth thinking. How do we kind of um, go beyond the political binaries um, and to see possibilities of communication and dialogue and um, um, and to initiate programs uh, where we can you know um, uh, kind of rethink our stereotypical understanding of a country. Um, I think it's quite relatable. I want to add this point um, before we close our conversation.
1: I, I think the the listener's experience and understanding of the book was, is undoubtedly enriched by that. So, yeah, I think that's a really good point to bring up also. You know, I think quite timely, as you say. Um, so I guess the final question that I have is another traditional question, which is, um, you know, what are you working on now? Are you working on anything now?
0: Um, I'm curious about, um, you know, because of all these works I have done, I started to see if it's possible to imagine cosmopolitan feminism, um, how to um, build um, um, global communities um, um, and address the kind of gender issues. Um, So this this, this is the thing that I've been thinking, you know, whether it's, you know, literature, or uh, actually in um, uh, organizing events or um, initiating exchanges, Um, I'm thinking um, towards that direction. I think um, we still have a lot of gender issues. I didn't talk very much about gender in, in this book, but it's been an increasingly important and a visible issue for me. I don't know, uh, it's just the stage of my life, I started to think more about gender. Well, I came to China as a result of the gender issue, uh, definitely, so feminism you know—it has been with me all the time, but I haven't done, um, you know over the past decade, I've been working on this project, right? So cross-cultural kind of project. But what is the gender issue? Uh, how, how does gender issue um, um, actually um, connects to the whole uh, cosmopolitan um, imagination? So I'm thinking um, doing some work around cosmopolitan feminism.
1: That sounds like such a fascinating project. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off.
0: Yeah, I mean, and the other passion I have... Um, I uh, have been having is uh, to translate, literal translation. Um, I, uh, I've i been working on you know, various translation projects um, alongside teaching uh, very slowly, <laughs> very time consuming. Um, but this is another thing I wouldn't stop doing.
1: Is there anyone that you're trans working on right now, translating right now that you're really excited uh, about?
0: Yeah, I've been working on a poetry translation project. Uh, it's a translating of um, um, Ma Hui, who is a contemporary uh, Chinese poet, uh, a, a sort of a hermit person. You know, it's really hard to get hold of him. <laughs> uh, but I was lucky to be able to um, contact him via uh, through a publisher, you know, in China. Um, so yeah, it, it's at the um, concluding stage now I hope you know I've finished translating all the poems already and uh, I'm also working with an artist and there will be poetry as well artwork um, which is the style of the original book obviously I'm kind of boring the same. I find books with illustrations and paintings especially with poetry books are always very um, appealing um, so yeah guess,
1: yeah I'd never thought about that actually, but yeah, I, I guess I can see that. I can see that. Well, that, um, those sound both like really interesting projects. So hopefully, you know, when you find time out of your really busy schedule to finish one of these, it just sounds like so much. Um, we will be happy to have you back on to talk about one of those. Um, but, uh, until then, um, you know, I guess we'll have to say goodbye. Um, but thank you again, um, for doing this interview. Um, And, uh, yeah, we'll look forward to talking to you about your future projects.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Clara, for the opportunity. It's a great pleasure to talk about my book with you and the uh, listeners.